Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And we have a really special guest on our couch today, and we're going to be talking about some serious stuff. It's a nice change from all of the nonsense that we tend to put out. <laughs> why, are you, why are you laughing like that? It's not all nonsense. Some is educational. <laughs> Most of it's just bloody nonsense. Yeah, I guess you're right. Hey everyone, it's Amanda, registered massage therapist in Toronto, and uh, yeah, today is a bit of a more serious topic, I guess. We have a guest here sitting on our couch whose name is Keisha, and Keisha is an ABA therapist, which I always forget. Help me again. What does ABA stand for? ABA is Applied Behavior Analysis. Applied Behavior Analysis. Thank you. I, I will get it eventually. And she works with um, people on the autism spectrum and... Um, recently her and I were talking about, um, again, if you're not from Ontario, this probably doesn't mean much to you, but, um, the Ontario government is making changes to funding for families, uh, with children with autism, which from speaking with Keisha, I've realized is actually going to be quite detrimental to a lot of people and taking away what seems to be pretty essential services because nobody can afford this. On the, or I shouldn't say nobody, but a vast majority of the clients you deal with, they're not going to be able to afford the services anymore. So before we get into all of the politics and the funding and whatever, I know that Mark wanted to have one of our mutual friends come on and we haven't been able to get her to come on um, because she has a child who's on the spectrum just to really talk about what is autism, I guess, and what this spectrum means. And as I said to you off mic, I know there is absolutely no way to do like an autism 101 on a podcast because it is a spectrum and there's different experiences. But based on the fact that you work in this field and you work very closely, closely with the clients, what types of things do you see with your clients with autism? I see a lot of various things. So there are clients that need help with daily living skills. So that could be toileting, that could be even just fine motor, like doing up their buttons or dressing and undressing their daily routines, such as just going to get ready in the morning, taking a shower. Some kids don't like to wash their hair. So we have to put in programs in place to do something like that. So there's lots of needs. And when it comes to daily living skills, there's also needs based on like social skills. So there's a lot of children who can't even say hi to somebody if somebody else said hi to them or can't hold a conversation with another person. So it's really hard to make friends in the classrooms or outside in the community or even participate in something as simple as a birthday party, which might seem enjoyable to most kids, but not to kids on the spectrum because it might just be really overwhelming for them. There's other kids who have language delays. So they might seem to start with early signs of development when it comes to language, but then somewhere in that age of the zero to two, you might see kind of a stop or just a regression in speech. Some kids may not even develop speech the way we typically all speak to each other. They might have to use a communication system outside of uh, using their own voice. So such as PECs, maybe this is where an iPad can come in, ProLoquo to go or LAMP or there's other systems that you could use to communicate with others, but it takes time to learn those things and to learn how to even know how to communicate with somebody. So 
There are a lot of needs and some kids might need help in all of those areas. So that is essentially that's what you do, right? You do behavioral therapy. So you work with kids who are on the spectrum and you put what programs in place to help them just learn life skills in whatever area they're in. Yeah. So they will go through many assessments before they come to a therapist and those assessments that we do will take lots of data to make sure that this is the needs that they need to develop. And we'll speak to parents and see what's important for them to develop, right? So whether it is something like toileting, whether it is something like feeding even is another thing that can be really hard, whether it's just using their gross motor skills to like actually chew food or if it's to increase the variety of their food. So based on interviewing with the parents, maybe talking to teachers at school and or anyone else in that child's life, we would develop a plan, develop a program and then implement that program to try and increase those needs. And we will use data to to determine whether that plan is actually working. And if it's not, we're going to go back in there and we're going to reassess and we're going to build a better plan using research. Mm -hmm. So when you have a client that comes to you and, you know, they've done the assessments, you've talked to the parents, the teachers, whatever it is that you have to do, and then you develop the plan, Now you've implemented the plan. You're monitoring it. You're measuring it, making sure that it's working. How often, or does, I don't know if it varies a lot, but how often do you see these clients? Is this like you see them daily, weekly, monthly? Does it depend on the client? So it depends on the client. It depends on their needs. Some clients who come in for IBI therapy are usually coming in daily for six hours a day. So they're getting really intensive services. They will be there up until they get reassessed and it is determined whether they should go back to school or if they should stay for another six months. Some kids come for maybe two hour services depending on the need. So if they're coming into a group-based therapy, they might get four hours a week. Some might get two hours a week if it's something like social skills that their needs aren't as extreme as other children. So the way that the system works now, do majority of the families that you work with, are they paying for your services out of their pocket or is all of the money coming from government funding? If they are in an agency that is government funded, all of that money is government funded. If they have chosen to use funding that they have been able to access off the wait list, then they can choose a private agency to go to and use that funding. Other people who have been waiting have been using their own funds to get services. So it just depends on whether they're they've been able to access direct services or direct funding or not. I obviously don't understand any of this. I don't have children who are on the spectrum. I I have some friends maybe, but I don't really understand what changes are being made and why. I mean, I know that there's a lot of people that are really upset about Doug Ford's plan and what's going on. Can you, as simple as possible for people who know nothing, which is me, can you explain sort of how it works now and what he's proposing to the best of your ability? I know you said there's some things that have happened and you haven't, you don't have all of the most current information, right? To describe it in the simplest way possible, right 
before February, the services were looking, if you were at a government-funded agency, clients would be accessing funding based on where they were on a list, on a wait list. So if they were waiting for more intensive services because their needs are higher, once their name was able to get onto the list after they've been diagnosed and they've finally been able to get services, they would be streamlined into either more intensive services or less intensive services depending on their need. So that wait list was based on how much services were available, which is not a lot. There isn't, unfortunately, a lot of service providers in Ontario already to service the needs of all clients with autism at the moment. But they were hiring more people when the Wynn government was in Ontario. So they were hiring more people. They were trying to expand services to provide more service providers and or give more option by providing funding option for families. I'm not saying that was the best plan, but it was a plan that was getting through to a lot of clients. So if they were if they were being put into less intensive services, some of those less intensive services would occur in three to six month blocks. Kids would come in, be assessed maybe two hours a week, four hours a week. Some kids were getting nine hours a week or something of that nature, I believe. So it was depending on their needs, they would get however many hours that were available. These programs were available more after school hours. So Mm -hmm. it was helpful for them to still be in school and also come to services and get some more therapy within their week. And they would be in service for six months. They would have consultations. They would have access sometimes to some SLPs or OTs or social workers at some points, depending if that was a need for the family that was being offered within some agencies. And um, they would get those hours and then they would go back into a waiting period as other clients were being served. So they there was a rotation happening okay. in that so time. Just make sure I'm making sense of this. The old system was once a diagnosis of autism was given, you could be put on a wait list to get government funding to get therapy for your child. And the therapy that was given was dependent on the assessments and the client's needs. So some people would, as you said, go into the intensive therapy probably be in therapy for six hours a day every day, whereas some clients would do the after-school programs. And like you said, it was sort of a rotation. So they weren't in therapy all the time, like Mm -hmm. it wasn't ongoing. And so the wait list, I could assume would have been super frustrating for people, but did it move relatively quickly? Like were people, were a lot of families getting funding when this was sort of the way things were going? If they needed intensive services, not as quickly as you would want. Okay. And that's just... So, I mean, this was a broken system to begin with Mm -hmm. because the therapy is expensive and there's not enough government money to help families with these services. Right. So then again, my question just being, I don't know anything. Why are people so mad about Doug Ford's proposal? As simply as possible, can you explain what he's planning to do with changing the way people access funding? So he's taking all the money away from the service providers and he's just saying, here, here's an equal amount of money for each person on the spectrum to quote unquote eliminate the wait list. So everybody's going to get the same amount of money regardless of need? Yes, but it won't even be the same amount of money. As your family 
family has more income, the money is going to be less. As you're older, the money is going to be less. So it's not really an even amount of money. It's just a one sum of money that's not going to be enough to afford for kids that are higher needs and maybe enough for kids that have lower needs if their families are in the mid to low range of income. Okay. So some people are going to be happy about this. Like people that weren't really getting anything before are going to be happy about this. Right. And but it seems there's more angry people than non-angry people. Yeah. I would say I've seen more people who are angry. I've seen families who have come here from other countries and know what it's like not to be able to afford this therapy and now are getting that answer that, okay, I came here thinking I was in a better place and I would be in a better position to afford therapy for my child. And that's just leaving my hands now. I'm not going to know what to do. There's some people who are remortgaging their houses, selling their homes, getting divorces just so that they can afford this therapy. Some people are questioning whether if they have more than one child on the spectrum, who is more important right now? Who should I pay for therapy for? Because I can't pay for both of them. So it's not meeting the needs of the majority of the families. So the kids that you work with, I, I just keep assuming you work with all children. Yes. Okay. The kids that you work with, in what ways do you think or do you know that they're benefiting from the therapy? Taking it away, what, what do you think is going to happen? Well, just by using the most empirically evidence-based treatment and making sure that there is data to back it up, you can see so many improvements from so many of these kiddos, like kids who you never thought could speak are speaking and communicating, whether it is through a device or PECS or... What's PECS? Sorry, you said that before and I have no idea what that means. Sorry. Um, PECS is a picture exchange communication system. So they're using pictures. So improvements you've seen, kids learning how to communicate. Kids learning how to toilet and use the washroom. Kids learning to be able to eat different foods and getting more nutrients instead of just parents relying on pediatrician to get their child's nutrients and kids learning how to be in the classroom and kids learning how to make friends. Like the number of clients that I've seen make friends within a group format and go home and actually maintain these friendships outside of therapy is great to see. And it mm-hmm. makes it, it makes families really happy and it makes us really happy to see that, right? Mm -hmm. Now with this plan, they might not get that treatment. Families might not be able to afford that treatment. One, families, maybe the ones especially that have immigrated to Canada and aren't really sure already how to navigate the system are going to get lost and still won't be able to navigate this system where here, this was a system that was like bringing them in and we were giving them the services, the best, most evidence-based service. But some of these families might look into alternative treatments that might not be effective or Mm evidence-based and might be detrimental to their children's development. It's just you're going to see maybe a lot less independence, maybe a lot more problems with at school. They might not even be able to attend school because if they have behaviors that the school can't be with, sometimes they're like, okay, maybe it's better to keep them at home for this point. Yeah, I was at a parent council meeting at the beginning of this month. And 
uh, one of the staff at the school made a good point that we have in my daughter's class, there's two children on the spectrum and there are quite a few in the school, uh, two in particular that actually only attend school. I want to say he said two days a week and then three days a week. They go to some sort of intensive behavioral therapy, so I assume like IBI therapy, and that's how they're able to still be integrated into the classroom because three days a week they're doing this intensive therapy, and then two days a week they come to school. And what the staff member was saying is if the funding changes and these families can't afford to do that 3-2 split, they're going to have this child in school five days a week, and this is going to be really challenging for the teachers to handle having a, you know, a child with behavioral issues in the class five days a week with no help. Yeah, and you might actually see more than just that one child in a classroom now. You might see five of them with maybe just one EA to support them because it's not like they're hiring more support staff or anyone that's trained to actually be in those classrooms to actually help with those services. Well, so, okay. So this is the thing. I understand why you think this is going to be detrimental. Like you are there like working in the trenches with the kids day to day. You see the positive effects of the therapy and you know a lot of the families aren't going to be able to afford to continue this type of therapy at this intensity when the money's being dispersed the way it's the plan is going. There are people, however, and like I said, I've only met one, but one person who said, you know, we weren't getting anything before and now we're going to get something. Is that something going to be helpful to people or is that something still not enough? I mean, it depends on their children. It depends on their needs of their children. If their child doesn't have high needs, then maybe, maybe this might be great for you. Mm -hmm. But if your child has really high needs and really needs that intensive $60,000 to $80,000 therapy each year, then this is nothing. This won't do anything for you. This might give you a few weeks of service. So is that typical? Like for somebody with high needs, $60,000 to $80,000 a year is what it costs to keep somebody in therapy? Yep. Wow. Yep. It's, Yeah. It's more than tuition. Like, yeah, I was just going to say the stuff that we take for granted. As I said, I, I don't have children who are on the spectrum. So this is not something that obviously directly affects me. Mm-hmm. But just I couldn't imagine as a parent knowing that there is something that my child could be getting that would help them develop and that would be beneficial for them. But I can't afford it. Like, what do you do? That's the question, right? Like, what are you going to do? I'm not sure. Like, and it's, and it's, it's a funny thing. Like, as a therapist, as someone who supports the BCBA community and anyone that's qualified to make these decisions where kids come in and they develop a behavior plan and develop programs for them. Doug Ford called BCBAs self-interested. Sorry, what are BCBA? Just for- uh, Board Certified Behavior Analysts. Okay. So you were mentioning as well off mic that for anyone to get government funding, they have to have what, a BCBA supervising the therapist. Yes. So you are an ABA therapist, yes, mm-hmm. but you ha- have to have somebody supervising you to provide therapy to the children. So as you were saying, just for one hour of therapy, the BCBA is being paid and you're being paid. So 
two people for one hour, I can imagine how expensive this therapy is hourly. Yeah, it's super expensive. I don't even think therapists get paid enough. That's in a whole whole other game, right? But I know therapists that are just making like if you went to a private center they're probably making 16 to 21 dollars an hour if that it's just right above minimum wage it's nothing spectacular we don't go into this field expecting to make so much money and expecting to uh you know come out with a really high standard of life well yeah and i know you and i have talked about this that you guys don't get paid enough. And I agree with you 100%. Um, Way back in my early 20s, I took a job through Toronto Parks and Rec. So the city has programs for, I worked at one program that was for um, young adults, so like teenagers and young adults with high functioning autism. The program that we did was supposed to be focusing on life skills. So we would take like field trips throughout the day to learn how to take the bus. So you know how, you know, the proper change you need for the bus or how to purchase bus tickets, um, how to map out your trip using the the TTC bus routes. Um, We would do um, cooking and grocery shopping. So how to make a grocery list based on what you're going to be eating that week. And then we'd go to the grocery store and we would do the shopping together. Then we would prepare meals together. Like it was... And again, this is with people with high functioning autism, like the goal of this program was to teach them life skills because eventually they could probably be independent or primarily independent, you know, with a little bit of assistance. And even doing that job, I would come home at the end of the day and it was, I mean, it's probably the one of the most rewarding jobs I ever did, but I was so exhausted. It was so challenging, super emotional. You get very attached to your clients, whether you intend to or not, and the behavioral issues. I mean, as much training as I had, I don't know if you can ever be fully prepared for a 356-pound, 21-year-old male to decide he's just going to sit on you because he's having a bad day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It was, uh, yeah, it was it was an experience yeah. for sure. Three summers I did that program and I don't, I mean, I've told you this multiple times, like, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do this every day and still come in here with a smile on your face. (laughs) It's challenging. It is challenging. And I've worked with so many people that have had challenges with it and maybe don't want to continue in the field. But I've also met a great amount of people that love this field so much and love to see the positive changes that we can make. And just by delivering therapy and being there and watching children grow and watching their progress, it's, and it's not even just children. I've worked with adults as well. And it's just remarkable how much progress they can make, even if it's in small strides. Yeah. I mean, any, I say the same thing to my clients when I'm treating them, right? Like any positive change in the right, you know, if we're going in the right direction, let's take that as a win, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's an extra three to five degrees in your range of motion. We're going in the right direction. So I I know that feeling of like, yes, we're getting somewhere. And to think that a lot of these people who were seeing positive results are now coming to a halt because government funding is being taken away. And that's the thing, like there's going to be a lot of regression, which 
is probably the saddest part. You might see someone who's going to be put into a dangerous hold because teachers are not trained well enough to implement the best strategies to keep them safe and keep everyone else safe around them. So they might harm a child just by trying to keep everybody in the room safe, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that it's going to work. So it was the president of Ontario Autism Coalition that had said that. And it was really effective because it's true. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even if safety is obviously a big concern, but even if it's not that these kids are possibly hurting other children, just the fact that they need extra attention, that's taking the teaching staff's attention away from the rest of the children in the class. So it's not only hurting the child with autism, it's also affecting all of the other children because there needs to be extra bodies, there needs to be extra resources when you're now going to have all of these kids probably more integrated into the classrooms because they just can't do this therapy. And now they're going to increase class sizes. Mm-hmm. Imagine what that's going to look like. It's, it's. It feels like there's no good news coming from the government this year. Oh, that is very sad. On a another note, you know, since we were talking about the fact that nobody goes into this field expecting to get rich, and it is challenging, and I know that you and I have swapped stories in the past about, as you know, the one I just mentioned, me getting sit on, or you know, I know that you've had violence towards you with some of your clients. How did you get into this? Like, how did this become your career? Um, When I was in university, I was offered a job opportunity to work with a child who has autism. I had no idea what that meant, but I knew I wanted to be in the psychology field. And this was an opportunity that the psychology professor of my class was presenting. So I said, hey, this might be a good experience to Mm -hmm. learn something new because Unfortunately, in university, we don't talk about a, a lot about autism. And that was the one thing I really noticed. There's maybe one little section on it, one chapter of all of the courses I've taken in psychology, but it wasn't a whole lot. So that's where I started most of my learning. I applied for this job. I got started working with a mother and her son, and she was the one that began to teach me, and the previous therapist working with him began to teach me what this was all about. And then from that, I learned that there was a whole field of people who work with children with autism. I learned about ABA therapy and uh, got into a college program, a graduate certificate program, and applied for it, studied in that field, did a two-year program, and then, and then from there, I started to work in the field and learned a lot more about ABA therapy because as much as the mother that I work with could teach me and her, the prior therapist, there was so much more to learn from different children from different experiences. And as they say, if you meet one person with autism, you're only meeting one person with autism. Yeah. Well, like I said at the beginning, it's impossible for us to really talk about autism as if it's like one specific thing, because even with all of the people I have met who are on the spectrum, none of them are the same. There's no. there's different as every other person. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It depends on what type of needs they have, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I did have one client that I worked with when I worked at the city program and to meet him, you wouldn't think much, like you wouldn't think that 
there was necessarily anything different about him, aside from the fact that he didn't make eye contact. Um, socially, he he did, I guess, come across as a little awkward, but his speech was perfectly normal. Um, he was a very independent guy. You know, he took the bus to and from the program every day, but he had these like inc- this incredible memory for certain things. Um, like the way the human brain works is so fascinating to me. And the fact that this, you know, this guy who was on the spectrum, he had memorized every single bus route in the city of Toronto. He knew exactly where every bus went. He knew like the ones that stopped short or whatever. He knew everywhere. So anytime we were planning out a trip to go somewhere on TTC, we just had to say, hey, where do we go? And he would give us all of the bus routes anywhere. It was just incredible the way this guy's brain worked. Mm-hmm. And like I've had a similar experience with a client who just new driving directions for everywhere. Just you can get lost anywhere in the city that he lived in. And he would tell you how to get back home. He would tell you how to get to the mall he wanted to go to. So I never Google mapped anything when I was in the car with him. I just let him direct me. And I mean, it took me a little bit for him to not just tell me, turn left right when, <laughs> right when you had to turn left. Uh, and now he can tell you switch your switch your lane to the left or switch your lane. So to that was the part right of the therapy. You were you. like teaching him how to give directions. I mean, no, that was in a just, safer way. <laughs> that was just that was just something that happened within the other stuff we were doing. That was just more incidental teaching. Like, please don't scare me because now we've <laughs> now we've passed that intersection and I'm not I'm not making a quick turn. Um, but that, that was more incidental teaching, like he's interested in it. And when we talk about incidental teaching, that's something that you do when a child or a client shows interest in something. So then you just kind of go use that opportunity to teach them this new Mm. skill, but it wasn't a planned program from the start. It wasn't something that you, you even were thinking about, oh, I should teach him this. It just happened in the moment. He was interested in the moment and then he started to build that skill. It's a lot when it comes to therapy and applied behavior analysis, we use the motivation to teach. So if you can teach that client you worked with about the TTC and how to travel because he's interested in the roots, but maybe he doesn't know how to count money. If you can use that opportunity to teach counting money or other life skills, Mm -hmm. you're going to see a lot more learning there because you're using their motivation. Right. Something he's already really interested and really proud of. It was like, it was a pride thing. Like he loved to be sort of in charge when we had to make the bus routes. And I remember it actually once caused friction because I'm not a behavioral therapist and I didn't know any better. And uh, we were going on a day trip one day and he gave his suggestion for what route to take. And I suggested something different. And that caused a problem because he did not, I guess he wasn't used to somebody like, you know, giving him an alternate route or a different suggestion because this is, you know, this is what I know and I know it well. And yeah, it caused a little bit of a problem and a little bit of a meltdown in that moment because I, I tried to question his TTC knowledge. And that's okay too, right? Because we don't want to teach kids to be rigid Mm -hmm. and to, this is the one way and this is the only way. We want to teach them to be more flexible, but yeah, because 
as an ABA therapist, I know that we would do that more systematically instead of just surprise them like, hey, <laughs> this is this is how it's going to be. And then yeah. you're going to have the meltdown and you're going to have maybe behaviors along with it. So that was the first time I ever really like realized like, right, like he's here for a reason. He's here because he does have high functioning autism. But as I said, he just seems so... I don't want to use the word normal, but yeah, like a typical Typical. guy, like Mm -hmm. other than the fact that he didn't really look people in the eye, which I know people who don't look people now, I'm guilty of that. I kind of like look all over the place sometimes. Mm -hmm. I never really like considered him to be like one of my clients that I was teaching things to, but yes, of course he was. Um, I had another client who knew everybody by name and birthday. So he associated, like he would meet you. um, So it'd be like. Hi, what's your name? What's your birthday? Uh, Mark, August 6th. All right. You could run into this guy six years later and he would come up to you and say, Mark, August 6th. Wow. It was really, really cool. He didn't forget anybody's name and birthday combination. And then he started adding Zodiac signs in. About the third year I knew him, it was Amanda, February 9th, Aquarius. That's awesome. It was so cool. Yeah. You're sitting very quietly there today. <laughs> I, I, I missed some of it. What is the funding like now? The funding is based on need. Once their name comes up on, off the wait list, they're given a choice of direct funding or direct services. So if they choose to go into direct services, their needs are assessed and there will be a behavior plan that is created based on their needs. And that will come with a number of hours, whether it's six hours a day or four hours a week. Okay. So then there's two things that come up. It's either going to be direct funding, meaning that family gets money, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or they get their services somewhat paid for or Mm -hmm. full paid for, right? Fully paid for, yeah. Okay. And then the whole point, just so I'm on, on the right page, the whole point of all this is to eliminate wait lists, huge, long. This is what, yeah, this is what Doug Ford is saying is his reason is instead of having this wait list, every family is going to get some money. Yes. It is going to be based on um, the family's income. Yes. Yes. And and the age. So when I read this here, the new autism program gives families up to 140,000 to pay for treatment, a maximum available only to the lowest income families whose child is in treatment from ages 2 to 18. The funding is also subject to annual caps of $20,000 a year until the child turns 6 and $5,000 a year after that to um, the age of 18. The government confirmed that only families with an adjusted annual net family income of under $55,000 will be eligible for the full amounts of the funding. Right. Let's say that you had a child on the spectrum and your family income is $200,000 a year. So yeah, you have money. In theory, sure, you can pay for some services. But as she was saying, some of these high needs children, their services are costing up to $80,000 a year. So even if you have a family income of $200,000. I I just want to understand what the funding was like before. Yeah. So the funding, like she said, it's not, it wasn't ideal before because you had to be on a wait list and yada, yada, yada. But once your name came up, then it was based on what you really need, not just your income. You're looking very serious. You have any thoughts on this? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> not a one, huh? No. I mean, 
It is a complicated issue no matter what angle we see it at. But instead of using the plan that existed, that was working, that was seeing more clients than ever and maybe making it better, they chose to axe the whole thing and then say, hey, we have this plan. It's going to be better, but it really isn't. Well, that is unfortunate. I don't even know where else to go from that. I mean, that's that's the only thing that you can really say. It's, you know, unfortunately for families of children with higher needs, the money's just not going to be there. And now I'm at least starting to understand why I have been seeing in the media that there are, as you said, people selling their homes, um, yeah, I didn't hear about anyone getting divorced, but I guess it's whatever they can do to to mess with their own income so that they can yeah. get as much funding as possible. The government right now, they're not thinking about the future. This thing that they're doing right now to make themselves look better right now, but imagine in 20 years or so when these kids become adults and didn't get the services they needed how many more families will have to put their children in group homes because their behaviors might not be manageable anymore mm-hmm. and because it would be a danger to keep them at home? How many more kids will not be socialized enough to go into the workforce? There's a lot of things that are negative that can happen in the future that this plan right now is not, they're not thinking of it. hmm I mean, as massage therapists, we are trained not to talk about politics, yet we're doing a whole podcast about it. But I mean, part of the reason I wanted to have you on and talk about this is because, again, not that you can really understand autism just by, you know, listening to an hour podcast, but understanding that having a child who is on the spectrum, again, based on their needs, having services like this, like having ABA therapists to teach them things that we probably take for granted for. So teaching them how to better communicate, how to dress themselves independently, how to manage money or whatever it is that you're working on with that person, whatever life skills it is. So that, as you said, in 20, 30 years, they're not going to end up in group homes or they're not going to... Depend on the government and depend on other people to just get through their day. Yeah. I think I have all the information I need. It's made me a little clearer. Thank you for coming in and sitting on the couch and telling us all about things that I knew nothing about. Thanks for having me. Wrap it up, sir. You guys have been listening to Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. Peace.